Brian Reed, do you want to open in prayer? Okay, I'll get you. I love it. That's a running joke we have. We're welcoming into our living room tonight some special guests, so hold your applause. I know that Fred usually likes to be singled out and everybody clapped for him, and then everybody else after that, but I'm going to, as we've been anticipating, our Mississippi group is with us tonight, our faithful DVD representatives, John and Mary Ford Roach, Fred, Mary Helen, Jack, and Sela Ferguson. Hold your applause. From Ohio, David and Vicki Pressler. From Florida, Jeff and Colleen Singer. Now you may give them a hearty Tetelestai applause. You can stand up if you want so people can see you if, you, if you're comfortable. Please stand, please stand, please stand. You look younger than the last time I saw you, John Gordon. Mary Ford, too. I'm not kidding you. I don't ask these people. I don't uh, BS Bachelor. All right, now, if you notice, there is a printout, 10 pages long, which is the fruit of about three, maybe four years of labor since we started Better Call Paul. And it is a expanded paraphrase in the spirit of Nehemiah 8, 8, to convey the sense. So it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase like the Targums used to be. They translated the scripture and gave the sense. The result was people understood. They went away rejoicing. The joy of the Lord was their strength. So I'm doing this as a pastor to help your joy. My goal was to have that in print, the first four chapters of Romans, the epistle, in print, very widely paraphrased. And I hope if you get that, that you'll read the first page because there's a couple of disclaimers in there, what it's not intended to be. And tonight, I just finished this at 5 o'clock. It's been edited about 16 times been condensed, expanded, expanded and condensed, added to and subtracted from until I get, I think I have the sense of Romans 5 through 8. Now, this is going to give you, I think this has the power to be more effective, to elevate you in grace, elevate you into the divine life, which is what this is all about, elevation into a participation in the divine life. And Romans, we called it RTE, Romans, the epistle. The first part one called an introduction, one, one through 17. Second part, and this is where I had to take a lot of meticulous care, is 118 to 425. That's what I call a dialectic. Of contradictories. In there, there are two gospels that are irreconcilably contradictory, and it forms up what is called a dialectic of contradictories. There you'll see in the printout exactly when the opponent is speaking. I have him labeled. You'll see when Paul is speaking. You'll be amazed how many people say Paul said this when it was an opponent that said this. Throughout history, it's amazing. Tonight, appropriate, I guess, for the eve of the 4th of July, celebration of American independence, I call this all Paul. No dialogue in this one. This is Paul bringing to the Romans and to us the unchained gospel. There is never a place in all of literature, even all the Bible, in which the condensed truths, the liberating, transformative, glorious truths, the wonderful saving truths of God are more clearly pronounced, proclaimed, and nucleated. And again, 
having finished this at five o'clock tonight, I'm celebrating with great thanksgiving to the Lord. So I'm going to be reading Romans 5, 1 through 839, all Paul, pure gospel, and some references to the accusations that he's had against him and that all grace preachers eventually do. And we'll see this. So please note again, it's a vastly expanded. It's intended to give the sense. I beefed it up from insights that we've received for the past eight or ten years. It's beefed up from an exegesis that we've done for two and a half years where we've emphasized Romans. And so it involves a constellation of insights from the Holy Spirit. My intention is simply to help your joy. And that's 2 Corinthians one twenty four. So let's begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for the immensity of this enterprise of an expanded paraphrase meant to convey the sense. And we already sense the presence of the triune God in our midst. The presence of the Son of Man walking up and down in the midst of the lampstands. Granting insights. Granting elevating grace. And we pray that you will, in fact, use this expanded paraphrase. Even tonight, this central part of Romans 5 through 8. The unchained gospel. Use it to elevate us into a participation with your divine life into the supreme good that is a fellowship between human and divine persons in mutual unparalleled love and that we may present this hope, this joy, this gospel, which is the saving power of God to all we meet. We present ourselves to you tonight. And as I always do as a preacher, I entrust my spirit into your hands, Father. And we pray that tonight we will not only serve you with our spirit, but serve you in the power of the Holy Spirit as you grant us insight after insight. So may many be surprised by joy tonight. And may we always do what you always do. Have our expectations exceeded. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 5. Therefore, being justified on account of the aforementioned faithfulness, that of Messiah Jesus, faithfulness in which he was willingly handed over and willingly handed himself over to take away our sins and was raised up for our justification. As 425 says, let us enjoy peace with God, which is a created participation with and a graced imitation of the uncreated God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access into this justifying, sanctifying, elevating grace in which we stand. And let us boastfully exult In the confident hope of the universal glory of God, which is destined to fill the whole earth. Beyond that, let us also exultingly boast in our tribulations rather than falsely consider them to be signs of of God's disapproval of us. Knowing on the contrary that by God's loving design, Tribulation produces perseverance. The proven character, verse 4, which in turn intensifies and incentivizes hope as an assured expectancy of God's universal glory. And verse 5, and this hope is not just a deferred consolation. It doesn't embarrass you for having it. Because in the meantime, the love of God, God's self-gift, God's gift of his own love has already been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by the Father and the Son. 
granting us a foretaste of the age to come. Verse 6, a new paragraph, in order to understand just what kind of unparalleled love this love of God is. Consider that while we were on the verge of an irreversible death, Christ died just in time. In the crisis of the ages, as Hebrews 9.26 says, the juncture of the ages in behalf of the ungodly, which is all of humanity and all of its times, which God simultaneously surveyed, according to Romans 3.10 to 12 previously, with difficulty, verse 7, you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person. And you may be able to find out that someone was brave enough to die for a benevolent person, one's benefactor. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin, as God saw the whole human race in all of its times in a sweeping survey, Christ died in behalf of us and in our place, enduring with God the Father and the Spirit the ultimate harvest of sin, where sin would have brought us finally and everlastingly to an incomprehensible death. Comment that I make are dotted throughout here. Christ's death as God's lamb occurred while all the human race in all of its times was seen by God as being under sin. Verse 9, much more assuredly then, since we have now been justified by Christ's blood, his redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying death as God's paschal lamb, we will be saved from the aforementioned wrath of which my opponent spoke in Romans 1.18 to 32 and 2.16. Saved from that aforementioned wrath through him, through Jesus Christ, as I, Paul, said in 2.16b. Verse 10, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, made his friends through his son's death, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That is, by sharing in his own life in a created participation in God's eternal life as Ephesians 2.5 in connection with Romans 5.18 says this is a life-giving justification a rectification of the situation of a humanity dead in sins not only that but we also boast in God not because of any achievement or action on our own, but through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. For we who were reconciled with all the rest of the world by God in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, have now been consciously reconciled, having been awakened to faith by the Spirit Via the gospel. Verse 12. New paragraph. Therefore just as through one man. Sin. Capital S-I-N. As a cosmic adverse power. Entered into the world. And on account of sin. Death. The wages of sin. Is death. And thus death spread like a contagion. Through all human beings as is clearly shown in that everybody sins. Indeed, sin was in the world before the law, before the Torah was given through Moses. But sin as an individual transgression 
is not charged to one's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam through whom sin came and death because of sin until Moses through whom the law came, which only intensified sin's hold even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's particular transgression. His transgression was the violation of a direct divine command. He, Adam, is a type, an anticipation of him, the antitype, Jesus Christ, who was to come, called the coming one in John 1.9, 141, 425 and 26 and 1127. Sometimes we recall earlier studies. Verse 15, but the free gift, charisma, says the Greek, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, if we look forward to 623, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, then how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to enrich the many. That is with life by the grace. That is the faithfulness, the faithful obedience to the extent of death, the blood of the one man, Jesus Christ, the gift. Another word for it to Dorema. Emphasizing God's free action of giving is all out of proportion to the one man's sin. On the one hand, one sin brought judgment resulting in the sentence of condemnation. But on the other hand, the gift to charisma, which emphasizes the superior power of grace over sin, coming after many Uncountable trespasses brought the sentence of acquittal, justification in the special sense of the opposite of the judgment of condemnation. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life with death dethroned through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, 518, heart of the heart of the gospel, as through one sin came condemnation to all people without exception, So through the righteous act of one came the justification of life to all people in all times without exception. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted as sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, the many, many interchangeably used with all emphatically here as well as in mark 10:45 in a comparison with 1 Timothy 2:6 all were constituted as righteous and you can see Isaiah 53:11 for that through his knowledge or through his suffering literally the many he would justify many many equaling all the human race Moreover, says verse 20 of Romans 5, the Mosaic law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would actually increase. Remember, Phoebe read this originally to the Romans and she performed it. So I'm kind of pulling a Phoebe on you tonight. But where sin superabounded, grace superabounded much more, thus bringing about a much greater good. Listen carefully, because this is where we're going to our next increment in theology. Thus bringing about a much greater good 
than if Adam had not disobeyed and if sin had not entered the world and spread its plague throughout the human race. Verse 21, to the end that just as sin reigned in death over the whole human race is the point. So grace will reign through righteousness, which is God's saving justice, resulting in eternal life, a created participation in divine life through Jesus Christ our Lord for all the human race and for all creation for that matter. Now here's where I put three paragraphs of my own comments here because, well, insights. One, here we see the undisputed fact that God willed a world in which evil was permitted rather than a world in which evil was not permitted. God permitted the evil of the super proliferation of sins so that he could give a much higher and greater good to the objects of his love by grace. He did this because his unrestricted and unparalleled love wills the very best for those whom he loves. And he knew that the good that comes out of the transformation of evil would be a greater good than merely created good. That God permitted not only the transgression of the one man, Adam, but an immeasurable proliferation of transgressions through the slipping in of the law of Moses became an occasion to demonstrate his immeasurable and boundless grace toward the objects of his love through the one man, Jesus Christ, the second person of the divine triune God, who assumed a human nature through his incarnation and became sin in his crucifixion. Those objects of his love being all of humanity in all of its times and the whole of creation in the heavens and the earth in all of its times. Second insight, once again, call it a thesis if you want, once again with the reference to this salvific apocalypse, the apocalypse being a saving revelation of Christ. I'm impelled once again to ask the question that is the basis of our study, not only of Romans, but of all of Paul's epistles. Do all of Paul's epistles constitute together an apocalypse, more specifically, an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ? So far, I am impelled to answer yes, Emphatically, yes, inasmuch as all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. They are the dynamic documentation, that is Paul's epistles. They are the dynamic documentation of the apocalypse of God as the movement of passionate Trinitarian philanthropy of God's great love for humankind and indeed for all of creation, arrow forward to Romans 18, 8, 19 to 23. Third insight, in chapter 6, and even in 6, 1 through 8, 13, we discover that justifying grace is sanctifying grace. Because this is the case, the accusation against Paul and his associates, both ancient and modern, and even modern day, that their gospel, which accentuates grace and Christ's universally saving grace, somehow encourages evildoing, as Romans 3.8a said. That accusation is utterly demolished. The grace that justifies also rectifies. The grace of God, which is Jesus, sets right what was wrong. Sets apart to God what was once unholy and unpleasing to God. And elevates the lowly into a participation 
of divine life out of death. Thanks to Christ and him crucified. So we're ready for Romans 6, 1. Can you handle it? What shall we conclude then, Paul says? Shall we persevere in allegiance to sin, sin as a cosmic power, as a personified power, so that grace will abound? As some slanderously accuse my associates and I as saying, arrow back to Romans 3.8. In other words, does the superabounding grace of God Romans 5.20, lead to our continuity in slavery to sin. Verse 2, certainly not. How can those who died to sin live any longer in it? And we did die to sin when Christ died. For when one died, all died. Are you not aware, those of you who accuse my associates and I of saying, Go and do evil that good may come. That as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, not merely by a sacramental rite, but by an act of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Ephesians 4, 4a and 4, 5b, just to verify it, were immersed into his death, not by a sacramental rite, R-I-T-E, but by an act of the spirit, an act which may be referred to as instauration, the next big doctrine coming up. We were buried together with him through this aforementioned immersion into death, not by a sacramental rite, but by an act of the spirit, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, the glory of the Father being the Holy Spirit by name, the glory of the Father. So we too may walk in newness of life, not in our own power, but by the divine power, namely the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Arrow forward to Romans 8. 4 to 13, back to Romans 1, 4. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we most certainly have, so we will likewise be united with him in resurrection. Inserted comment, this whole process is our participation in the divine action of instauration, which by definition is the transformation and transfiguration of all created reality by the universally redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. Verse 6, for we know that our paleo man, the now obsolete former self, who is worse for wear by being under the controlling allegiance to sin, was crucified together. Eris passive indicative of sustarao, that is, we could say, instarated with Christ, so that the body of sin sin as an embodied or personified power, would be rendered powerless to control our allegiance. So that in turn, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, adding a comment. Once again, it is not obscure here, but very clear that sin, with a capital S, is unveiled to be a cosmic, personified Suprahuman power that is stripped of its control of us by our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. Verse 7, for the one who died, that should be emphatic, the one who died, Romans 6, 7, Christ, the one who died, remember, the one who died was justified. And when he died, all died. So when he died and was justified, all died and were justified. I'll throw in something. John Paul II in Vatican II said something that's not taught in all those churches that he was pope over. He said, 
God has redeemed the whole human race in all of time. Just not everyone is conscious of it yet. Why don't they teach it? See, this has nothing to do with Romans. It's just, forgive me, I'm human. So, for the one who died, that's Jesus, as is clear from Romans 8.34, forward arrow, and with him all of humanity and all of time, is liberated from the control of sin. Now, having died with Christ, we believe, that is, we have absolute confidence that we will live with him even now, but then in bodily resurrection, completely. Because we know assuredly that Christ, having been raised up from the dead, can never die again. And in Christ, all will be made alive, never to die again. Death no longer lords it over, that is, has no power over him. In that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. So bank on, the word bank on I use here because it's a phrasal verb in English which connotes confident reliance. Bank on the fact that you, that's plural, you all or y'all, are dead to sin on the one hand. And on the other hand, that you are alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because when he died, you died. And he arose justified as you arose justified and freed from sin's control. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Mortal body, because we have this life and livingness to God even now. Even now. But wait until the immortal bodies come. When our deliverer comes from heaven to change our bodies. Philippians 3, 20, 21. So that you obey its impulsive desire. So backing up a little bit to make the verse a little Shorter, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its impulsive desires. New paragraph 13, do not make available your members, that is the sum total of your body parts or your entire being for that matter, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, activities that are antagonistic to justifying and sanctifying grace. On the contrary, as those who are alive from the dead, which is what you are, present yourselves to God and make available all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for rectitude, for sin will not lord it over you. That is, to command and have your allegiance anymore. Since you are not under the law, but under grace. It is the very fact that you are not under law that sin has no control over you. It is the very fact that you are under grace that sin has no control over you. Based on this, what do we infer? Verse 15, should we sin? That means should we continue in allegiance to sin as a cosmic power antagonistic to God because we're not under the law but under grace? Again, as some slanderously report that my associates and I are preaching, back to Romans 3 8a, he's still answering that question. Of course not. See, if it was me, I'd say, of course not, you idiot. But I... Paul's more gracious than I'm still growing in grace, growing in grace. Verse 16, do you not know that to the one whom you are making yourselves available as obedient slaves, to him you really are slaves? Whether of sin leading to death or of God leading to God-approved livingness in the power of the Spirit. Arrow forward, Romans 8, 4 to 13. But thank God that by his grace, you who were once slaves of sin were obedient from the heart to that pattern of doctrine 
to which you were handed over. That word is key word, paradidomi, found in Romans 124, 126, and 128, found in Romans 425, and 617, and 832. I say, thank God, Paul says, because he took out the stony heart in you and replaced it with a heart of flesh and caused you to be obedient to the new law of Christ. Caused you to be obedient to the new law of Christ. That's a comment inserted, but expands the paraphrase. Verse 18, moreover, having been liberated from sin, you become enslaved to rectitude. That's practical righteousness. Verse 19, parentheses, I'm speaking humanly here by personifying sin, which he does, and rectitude or righteousness as slave masters. Because of the human nature, the human condition, the weakness of your flesh, in other words, you as a human being have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan was right when he said you got to serve somebody might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And so Paul says, I'm speaking humanly here because of the weakness of your flesh. You have to serve somebody. You're not your own master. And that's simply the human condition. For just as you all made your members slaves to idolatrous impurity at one time, and to lawlessness as your master, resulting in slavery to and the production of lawlessness, just so now make your members available as slaves to rectitude, resulting in sanctification, which by definition is a graced imitation of God who is love. Sanctification is a graced imitation of God who is love and who breathed love in the spiration of the Holy Spirit. That's all going to come up with future theology. Verse 23, for the wages that sin pays is death. But the gift of God is participation in eternal life, even now, but then in bodily resurrection completely with Christ, namely, with Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is our Lord, not sin, not death, not the flesh, and not the sin-hijacked law. This prepares us for Romans 7. Here's a lead-in to it. Oh, we're going to finish it. We should be done by 10, so. In Romans 7, this is again my lead-in, especially 7, 7 to 25. Paul illustrates the folly of attempting to live a satisfying life by human performance of works that are commanded in the Mosaic law. In this passage, the apostle shows the exceptionally sinful character of sin as a personified power. Its enormously evil character is revealed most of all in the fact that it has hijacked something good and spiritual, the law itself, for its own ends. The law of Moses is no match for sin. But Romans 8 opens with the proclamation that what the law could not do, God did through his son. So in chapter 7, the apostle identifies with his siblings, fellow Jews, who he says, who know the law. In Romans 7, he said, I'm talking to you who know the law. In Romans 11, he starts saying, I'm talking to you who are Gentiles. You see, there's two factions he's got to reconcile in Rome. But he says, again, in chapter 7, the apostle identifies with his siblings who, quote, know the law and who know the fatal frustration of trying to be good and thus to function in God-approved livingness according to the dictates of a sin-hijacked law. And that's what his opponent's trying to get them to do, find a justification through the sin-hijacked law. That's insanity. In the climax of this dysfunction, 
which we find in Romans 7, 24 and 25. In the climax of this dysfunction, he shouts his thanks to God for the liberation from this wretched condition that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord again. From there, the apostle communicates an understanding of the coalescence of divine missions of the Son and the Spirit in their wonderfully saving liberating and universally transforming reality and power. So Romans 7, Paul says, I'm speaking to those among you who know the law now. He's got a specific audience within Rome. You know Torah. In this you should contrast with arrow forward, Romans 11, 13 and following. I'm speaking to the Gentiles among you. The Gentiles had a certain arrogant judgment of the Jews and the Jews had a certain arrogant judgment of the Gentiles. So Paul hits them both and makes them both lowly so they can be elevated by grace into the divine life. Are you not knowing you who know the law and he's a little facetious here. Are you not knowing brothers and sisters that the law lords it over a person? Notice what he says. Lords it over, not Jesus lording it over a person. The law lords it over a person only for the time in which she lives. He uses a she here. For example, verse 2, a married woman is bound by Torah, the law, to her husband while he's alive. Now, some women would say it's debatable, but I won't get into that. But if her husband dies... She is released from the Torah's directive that deals with husbands. Consequently, then, verse 3, if she gives herself to another man while her husband is still alive, she will be called an adulterer. But if her husband dies, she is free from that directive and she will not be called an adulterer if she marries another man. In an analogous way, Paul says, I've said this to say, my brothers and sisters, you were put to death. You were killed. This is a reference obliquely to Deuteronomy 32.39 and to the Targum of Deuteronomy 32.39. You were put to death with regard to the law through the crucified and dead body of the Messiah, the Christ. And him crucified. And this is all Paul's intending to communicate to them and to us. Christ and him crucified. So that you may belong to another man. Capital M-A-N. Namely the one who has been raised from the dead. I love how these phrases punch. The one who died. Now you're joined to the one who was raised from the dead. In order to bear fruit. When married Couples are supposed to be fruitful and multiply. This is the reference back to Genesis 1.28. In order to bear fruit for God. And that means ultimately by bringing others to God so that they too can be gifted with life and be children of God. That's what he means by bearing fruit for God. One of the things. For you see verse 5. As long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology or in the flesh. Sinful passions, and by that I don't mean sensual or sexual passions only, but the intense desire for preeminence over others operated through the law in every part of our body. That is our whole being, as Romans 12.1 indicates. To bear fruit for death, who reigned as our former Lord through sin. But now, yes, even now, we have been released from the law as illustrated in the Torah of marriage to a former husband and married to another, the crucified and risen Lord in a marriage in which divorce and separation is impossible. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Arrow forward, Romans 8, 38 and 39. Having died to what was holding us, so that we may serve God and one another in the never antiquated newness of the spirit. Arrow back to Romans 2.29. And not in the obsoleteness of the letter, which is the observance of the strictures of Torah in the power failure of the Adamic ontology. 
now superseded by the newness of life and service to God as priests in the spirit. Verse 7 now. Here's where Paul gets really identifying with those who know the law and who experience the frustration. What then, verse 7, is the Mosaic law sin? Most certainly not. On the contrary, like you know the law, I too as one who knows the law would not have known what sin is if it weren't for the law. For example, I wouldn't know what it is to covet. If the law, specifically the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty seventeen, had not commanded, do not covet. As I said before, through the law comes the consciousness of sin. Arrow back to Romans 3.20. But sin, commandeering the commandment, do not covet, as a base of operations, brought about in me every kind of covetous lust. For apart from the law, sin is dormant and inactive, dead. But with the law, sin is revived and activated. Now, once I was alive without the law. But then the commandment, which is the expression of the law's demand, came, and sin was revived. And I died. In other words, the law, with its promise of life, killed me. I discovered that the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing a base of operations in me, through the commandment, deceived me. And we all know that deception is an effective tactic in war. And through it, killed me. So then the law, verse 12, that's the law in its totality, the whole Mosaic Torah, is holy. Don't get the wrong idea. And the commandment, that which the Torah requires, not just of Jews, but all mankind. The Torah is holy, righteous, and intrinsically good. So I ask this, did something inherently good become the cause of my death? Can I say, medical conclusion, cause of death, the law? Of course not. Meganoito. On the contrary, sin, in order to be unmasked, to show what it really is, the culprit who brought about death in me through that which is intrinsically good, the law. Consequently, through the commandment, sin is seen to be immeasurably sinful. For we know, he says, that the law is intrinsically spiritual. That means its requirements of rectitude can only be fulfilled by the Spirit. Romans 8, 4, arrow forward. But I am of the flesh. I am of the Adamic ontology. Having been sold as a slave to sin, I don't even recognize what I'm producing because I've planted seeds that I would hope would result in righteous fruit. But instead, what comes up is a fruit I don't recognize. The sinfulness that I abhor. Because I do not practice what I intend to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, verse 16, if I'm doing what I do not wish or intend to do. You see, there's a lot of Jewish Christians under this opponent right here that are saying with Paul, wow, he gets it. I was afraid to say that's my testimony. But it is. Egregious misery. And the gospels that pass for Christian gospels today produce just exactly this kind of misery. And if anybody was honest about their testimony, they would tell you just how miserable they are. And they need the gospel of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ to liberate it. Liberate, liberate them and transform them out of that rotten mess. It's no wonder Generations coming up are rejecting this brand of Christianity. It's not Christianity. These are all pastoral comments. Forgive me. No, don't forgive me. If I'm doing what I don't wish or intend to do, then I'm not. I'm simply agreeing that the law is good. 
So now it's no longer I who is doing what I hate. After all, I'm intending good. But sin that dwells in me in the form of the Adamic ontology makes me do the opposite. I know that nothing of intrinsic goodness resides in me. That is, in my flesh, in my unaided human resources, which are at the mercy of sin. For I desire to achieve the good, but I don't find the ability. I don't do the good that I aspire to do, verse 19. On the contrary, I practice the evil that I disdain. Verse 20, but if I do what I don't aspire or desire to do, then it is no longer I producing the evil, but sin housed within me that possesses me because I've been sold as a slave to it in the Adamic ontology. So then, as far as the Sinaitic law, the law that came from Sinai is concerned, The outcome of the above experience is that for me, the one who wants to do the good, evil is what I find at hand. In my innermost person, I joyfully agree with the law of God. But I discover another law, and that's not another Torah, it's the same law. But it seems like two laws to him, one under the control of God, one under the control of sin. I find another law... At work in my members, not another law, but the same law co-opted by sin at work in my bodily members. And that that denotes the same undivided person, not another person. This is not, listen carefully, this is not depicting a divided self, but a divided law. At war with that Law of God that I observe in my intentions, taking me captive to the law controlled by sin in my members, which ought to be at God's disposal as weaponry in the eschatological apocalyptic war. What a miserable man I am. Who will rescue me from this body lorded over by death? I Thank God. You see, this body, Lord, this misery, you know what it is? It's where you end up by following my opponent's gospel, is what Paul is saying. I thank God for my rescue. Through my rescuer, Jesus Christ, our Lord, again the new and true Lord of all of us together. Consequently then, left to my own resources, with the mind, I serve God's law. The spirit is willing. But with the flesh, I serve sin's law. Same law, but hijacked by sin. But God who sent his son, now this is where we're going, Romans 8, and we'll close with Romans 8. We're going to finish it, even if we go five minutes after. So... But God who sent his son on a divine mission to die for me while I was completely helpless has also sent the spirit of his son so that I'm not left to my own resources after I'm liberated from my former captivity. 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation leading to death. There is justification leading to life to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not no condemnation for those who obey the law, but for those in Christ Jesus who were baptized into his death, not by a sacramental rite, but by an act of the Spirit. After all, no one alive can be justified in God's eyes. So we died. Verse 2, for the law that is the justifying and liberating power of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me. Paul continues the first person singular from Romans 7 here. Liberated me from the law, the enslaving power of sin and death. Now this is literally my comment here. The sin and the death. Liberated me from the sin and the death. Sin and death are two adverse cosmic powers that once enslaved us. Death being the name that was not found in the Lamb's book of life. Back to Revelation. But who was cast along with Hades into the lake of fire. 
according to the literary imagery of Revelation 20, 14 to 15. In other words, the one with whose name isn't in the Lamb's Book of Life is no human name, but the name death, personified, thrown into the lake of fire, along with hell. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it, rendered, it was rendered impotent by the flesh, which is the inimical or the inimical cosmic power of sin that both abducted the law and became operative in human members by setting up a base of operations there. What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. I'm going to speed this up and leave the comments to the printed doctrine sheet that will be out in a couple of weeks after I edit it nine more times. He condemned sin. With reference to sin, he condemned sin, not human beings, in the flesh of his incarnate son in order that the rectitude, which is God's approved livingness required by the law, would be fulfilled in us, that is, in those who comport themselves or walk, not in the flesh, that is, in mortal human bodies, in a manner not determined by the flesh, but by the spirit. Those who walk not by the flesh, but by the spirit. It's the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead, who resides in our bodily members so that we are walking temples. Verse 5, for those who are determined by the flesh, guided and governed by it, and not the spirit, think and intend with the flesh. But those who are determined by the spirit, guided and governed by the spirit of God, think and intend with the spirit. For the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh leads to death. That's the same thing that sin leads to. But the fixed inclination of the spirit leads to an experience of life as a created participation with divine life and peace. God approved livingness in the kingdom of God. For you see the fixed mental and intentional inclination of the flesh is by definition hostility against God. And this reflects the dialectic of contradictories, two opposing gospels in Romans 1.18 to 4.25. The gospel, so-called, of Paul's opponent opposes the gospel of God just like the flesh opposes the spirit. They are mutually, irreconcilably opposed. It does not submit to God's law, neither is it able to do so. Verse 8, those who are controlled by the flesh, that is, those who are in the sphere of the flesh's control, especially by trying to be justified by the works of the law, which has been rendered impotent by the flesh, cannot please God. This goes all the way back to Romans one twenty four. So much for God handing over the pagans who are incapable of pleasing God to gross idolatry and immorality. Because you don't please me and you can't, I'll hand you over to gross immorality. That's not Paul talking in Romans one twenty four. That's another guy, an enemy. But you are not in the flesh, Paul says, but in the spirit, since indeed the spirit of God actively resides in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Comment. Belonging to Christ means belonging to the spirit, for the spirit is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the son. Paul is saying here that when someone belongs to Christ, they necessarily have the resident Holy Spirit. Now, if Christ is in you, verse 9, your body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. That agrees with Romans 6.1. But the Spirit keeps giving life so that your body is an instrument of rectitude, righteousness, agreeing with the fact that your members are weapons of righteousness in 6.13. And with the idea and the reality that the spirit manifests the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies by the production of love. Romans 5, 5, 8, 4, Galatians 5, 22. Moreover, I'm only going to go. I don't think I can finish the whole thing and do it justice tonight. So I'll cut off pretty shortly. Verse 11. Moreover, if the spirit. Who is the glory of the father. Please notice that. The 
Glory of the Father that raised Jesus and raises us is the Holy Spirit. He is the glory of the Father. If the Spirit, verse 11, of the Father, the glory of the Father who awoke and raised Jesus from the dead resides in you, and he does, then the one, that is the Father, who awoke and raised Christ from the dead will make alive your mortal bodies themselves in bodily resurrection through the instrumentality of his spirit who indwells you. Consequently, that is, as a consequence of the spirit in you, siblings, we are not under obligation to the flesh to live under the domination of the flesh. The point here being the law, hijacked as it was by sin, obligates those who adhere to it in the hope of justification by it to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live dominated by the flesh, you must die. That means you will be separated from the livingness that is a participation with Christ so that you'll be dead while you're living, while in this body. But if by the spirit, of course, you are putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, you will live. That is, you'll have and live the life of the coming age, even now. The life that has conquered death, the life of Christ in you. A created participation in divine life. And as many as are governed and guided by the Spirit of God, verse 14, those are the sons of God, the divinely given title for eschatological redeemed Israel. In Hosea 1.10. For you see, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, like enslaved Israel in Egypt, leading to slavish fear, like the enslaved Israelites who feared the wrath of Pharaoh. On the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out to God the Father, Abba, Daddy. This adoption being fully realized in the parousia and in bodily resurrection. The spirit in verse 16 testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And since we are children, we are also heirs. The slavish fear of death under sin has been replaced with filial intimacy and love as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things. Seeing that we are suffering in order also to be glorified with him. For I'm banking on the fact that the sufferings of this present time of crisis, the clashing junction of the ages, are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is imminently to be apocalypsed in us. For the creation... I'll only go through verse 23 to have mercy on you all. For the creation, verse 19, eagerly awaits the apocalypse of the sons of God, the inbreaking revelation of eschatological glorified Israel. For the creation was subjected to futility. As Genesis 1-2 says, it was made void and without form in itself, only to be given purpose and shape by its creator's indwelling or residence. Not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the expectation, meaning God is the one who's hoping here. God's hope. He did this with a hope. But God's hope is a figure of speech for his determined resolution, his unstoppable determination. This is going to move us into our next increment of doctrine that will take a couple of years. That the creation itself will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all the creation in all of its times, as Revelation 5.13 puts it, pasa he katesis, or pan katisma, all of creation in all of its times, 
laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. But not only is that so, on top of that, we, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, otherwise known as the proleptic new creation, the church, the present Israel of God, or Christ corporate, sigh deeply in ourselves. This explains the suffering of this present time, my comment, and our suffering with Christ, which must precede and be the very means of our entry into glory. As we eagerly await the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship, that is the redemption of our body, their ransom from corruption, which occurs in the light of glory, in the beatific vision of God. I got to stop, I think. What time? Yeah, I should. Yeah, I should. There's a lot more to come, but I won't do that to you. So this is what's been the fruit of, I don't know how many years of study, but we still, we're going to take up then the next time with 24 through 39. Maybe I'll hit that Sunday and then hit some new points of an upcoming theological doctrine And then we will have communion service. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit not just to give an insight or two, but to present to us a constellation of lights, a constellation of insights that will pop in our souls, not just now, but as we go from here. And as these insights take hold of us, we recognize that your will is to elevate us from one horizon to another so that we actually participate in your divine life. What a glorious privilege. This is the privilege you've accorded and afforded all humanity in Jesus Christ. And we have this hope in us. Grant us the grace to give a reason for the hope to those who ask us because ask us, they will, especially as historical adversities come upon this nation. We thank you in Christ's name. And as we 